Hello and welcome. My name is Kirsten Johnston and I'm the chair of the Marketing Focus Group at the British Chamber of Commerce in Shanghai. This is our fourth episode of season one in the Live Lounge podcast series, where we invite business leaders to tackle major topics and trends impacting business in China. This time, our expert panel will discuss what do Chinese consumers want? The panel will advise on the best business and marketing practices to make your brand relevant and interesting to the Chinese consumer. Topics include understanding and monitoring Chinese demand, how Chinese tastes have changed over the last 20 years, and how to reach Chinese consumers today through technology. This panel is hosted by Matt Michener. Matt is a member of the Marketing Focus Group at the British Chamber and is the Marketing Manager at St. James's Place Wealth Management in China. He'll be talking to Jaya Ibrahim Lecomte, China's brand manager for Goose Island Beer, and Stone Shu, founder of Bonapp, one of China's go-to apps for discovering great places and activities throughout China's cities. Supporting experts in the panel include Jerry Claude, who is head of Digital Insight and director of Smart Research at Resonance, and Mark Tanner, the managing director of marketing and research and digital firm China Skinny. So now I'll hand over to Matt and his panel in the live lounge. Jump straight into it uh, and start with Mark. Uh, Mark's the first Kiwi on the panel tonight, who's been living in Shanghai for the last eight years and runs the well-known agency China Skinny. To get started, Mark,、uh, we all understand that with 1.4 billion people, China's an attractive market for brands looking from afar. In terms of what you see, how contested is this space?、Um, so we've done some calculations at China Skinny and. We think there's about 150 new grocery FMCG products coming on board every day. Plus, you add in wealth management products, you add in new tourism products, new apps, and new、uh, hotels, bars. All that all adds up to about 500 new products every day. Plus, on top of the established products that are already here, so it's clearly pretty competitive,、uh, the most competitive market on the planet. So as a brand coming in without any real differentiator or, or solid channel strategy, it's pretty difficult to get any form of mindshare. With that contested market and 500 products a day, what are the key elements a brand must get right when trying to market to Chinese consumers? Something that I think is often overlooked is just the basic: what product do they want? What format do they want? An example I often use is dairy, and from being from New Zealand and, and doing a milk run as a little boy. Uh, dairy is something that's very close to my heart. We've worked with about twelve dairy brands, and we saw that although there's this perception that foreign dairy is is better,、uh, the melamine scandal and a whole lot of other scandals, the price of domestic dairy is actually thirty four percent more per litre than、uh, imported dairy, which for us made no sense. We had to rerun the numbers and things, but again and again it kept showing up. And we looked at that and we're like, why is this happening? And We、uh, we looked at the way foreign brands come in and they'll go into a supermarket, they'll go into an e-commerce store and, and they'll scan the screen, and everyone's selling these one-liter tetra packs of of, de- of plain white milk. Whereas the average Chinese consumer doesn't really like milk; they don't drink it in the way we drink it in New Zealand or Australia or Britain. Or they don't have these big、uh, portions of milk. They'll, they'll have a small portion. And then they'll they'll probably put it in their fridge or their cupboard, as a lot of them do with the, the ambient temperature.、Um, and so when that 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 tetra pack is open, it's no longer fresh. So they feel there's a lot of wasted. You look at what 
the, the foreign brands are doing. They account for 98% of all one-litre milk products and sold online in China. Because you look at the smaller formats, dominated by the local guys. So they account for about two-thirds to three-quarters. So Chinese love that. One, they open it, it's fresh, it's single serve, they can take it with them. One, that's one thing, they're, they're getting the right size point. Two is, again, 70% of all plain white milk is foreign brands. Whereas most Chinese, a lot of them don't instinctively like milk in the way they've been brought up on milk, and they want more of a reason to drink it. So you're getting a lot of these uh, brands coming in, and they're selling kids' milk. So kids' sleep milk, or kids' brain development milk, or kids' bone development milk, or uh, fitness millennial gym-goer milk, or elderly joints milk, all these very segmented, uh, specific things that, that, as a consumer... I don't feel like I'm just getting the same homogenous stuff that 1.4 billion other consumers are getting. I'm getting something much for me. So it's about segmenting and and making the consumer feel special and and it really serves their needs and their lifestyle rather than just this generic uh, product that that a lot of the Western companies are coming in for. So I guess you just touched on, I guess, localization. Brands entering China and localizing their product for the local market. Can you provide examples of how this may vary from city to city in China? It's funny. A lot of people come in and they localize for China and they have this one generic strategy. Even a tier one strategy is, is, quite, is not that specific. When you've got 500 new products launching, you need to be a lot more specific than just giving people in Beijing the same product that you're giving down in Guangzhou. In Beijing, people are much more nationalistic. They're much more likely to buy a Chinese car. Uh, the more uh, family bonding really, really bodes well, resonates well with them. Things like the men, they're much more macho up there. You come down to, to Shanghai, they're very metrosexual. They'll, they'll carry their uh, partner's handbags. They'll, they'll do the cooking and the cleaning. So if you're selling like food products and things like that, you probably want to be more uh, man-centric in a place like Shanghai than, than the more macho Beijing. But I think another really good example is Shenzhen and Guangzhou which everyone lumps those two together. They're two tier one cities, 30 minutes apart on the fast train. And for one, Guangzhou, most of the, or the majority of the population are from Guangzhou. So they speak Cantonese as their, as their native language. Whereas Shenzhen was a fishing village a generation ago. You've had people come from all around China to seek their fortunes. So the, the common language is Mandarin. So at a very surface level, if you've got someone on the ground, you probably want a Mandarin speaker in one city versus a Cantonese speaker in another. At a much deeper level, you look at the way uh, Guangzhouese live. They, a lot of people, because they're from there, they live with their parents, these millennials that everyone's wanting. So they'll see their parents every night or or at least weekly, whereas down in in Shenzhen, because they're migrants, you may only see them once every three months or once every year at Chinese New Year. So you've got quite different emotional family needs. And if you're you're pitching that family bonding type message that so many brands here do, it's quite different for those two cities. And that's just the tier one cities. But you look at at all the the lower tier cities and the regional differences from food to climate to lifestyles and and all these things, there's there's often quite a matrix of uh, how you want to really make sure you're pushing their buttons. If you don't localize, you're really, really going to struggle to 
to be seen above the 500 new products and all the established products as well. Uh, I, might, I might just throw it to Jerry now. Um, so Jerry's a China expert as well. Um, he's been first came to China in 1994 and now leads the Insights and Digital team as Director for Resonance. As part of his role, Jerry actually has to visit over 200 Chinese homes per year to conduct research. Um, so with that, 25 years of living life in China, uh, what have you seen and what's changed in terms of expenditure and preferences? Um, I'll just tell two stories. So I was lucky enough uh, probably about 15 years ago to help Disneyland think about how they could launch their concept, their park here in Shanghai. And this wasn't a market research piece. This was literally the deliverable was writing a letter to the Shanghai government saying why this would be a good idea. Uh, I was lucky enough to visit many different families, not only in Shanghai, but around the Shanghai area to get their understanding of what they thought of Disney. Now, back then it was like, let us have it. Basically, this is an awesome global concept. We want that to be part of our life. Now, I think that sort of summarized the attitude of consumers uh, say a decade ago. Now, uh, recently I was in uh, Chengdu and I was talking to a guy who I assumed was quite normal. I was talking to him in his lounge and then all of a sudden he opened up the door to his bathroom and it was like a scene from the from Minority Report. It was fully intelligent touch screen. It was telling him about his diabetes. It was telling him about his weight, his his diet, all of these different things. Now, for me, that's one of the key changes. Five to 10 years ago, it was, I want what everyone else in the world wants. Now that has switched to, I want to ensure that what you're giving me is the very best for me. How do you see consumer trends with what Chinese consumers want in relation to technology? I think there's a fundamental difference between the West, whatever that is, and China. In the West, there is a fear about technology from a privacy standpoint, also in terms of where technology might be going in terms of AI. Whenever I speak to Chinese consumers here in China, they see it as the perfect way to make life better. They feel that brands should be talking to them about technology in a very optimistic way. <clears throat> Uh, when I talk to middle-class families, when they talk about the future, they want everything in their home to be intelligent because that would be the way that they can save time. That would be the way that they can be better parents. That's the way that they can truly live sort of a middle-class dream. Are there any myths or uh, misconceptions that you, you, you've seen in the market? Uh, yes, I think it's a bit of bad news. I think a lot of people outside of China and also in China are kind of crossing their fingers, hoping that Chinese consumers will turn Western. They're not going to. They're going to selectively take parts of Western culture to enhance their Chinese life. So we're starting to see that particularly educated consumers are starting to engage with Chinese culture more and more. We're starting to see more and more examples of hybrid culture we're starting to see brand identities which are not Western or Chinese, but a combination of the two. Certainly in terms of routines, and Mark touched on some of these, uh, there are ingrained cultural behaviours that will not change as a result of modernisation. One thing that's been uh, talked about quite a bit is people trading up and trading down of uh, various market uh, segments and, and, and I guess their expenditure. What, what are you seeing in the market currently when it comes to things like luxury goods and, and others? 
five years ago, the trading up would be very much about luxury and lifestyle products and brands. Now I think trading up is very much about uh, nutrition and health. So when I ask middle class families, uh, how do you think about your supermarket budget? They look at me as though I'm stupid. I say, well, I don't, I don't think about a budget. I simply want the best things in my shopping uh, supermarket trolley. I want the best things for my young son when he goes to school. I want the best things for me and my husband so we're the healthiest, so that we can compete in the marathon next month. There are no, no limits to the health that I can gain from food and nutrition. So there's a huge opportunity for premium nutrition and food brands. Okay, and just uh, last one before we uh, move to Jaya. Uh, you've worked on uh, China both internally and externally from working overseas and looking at China. Um, what are the main cultural differences you've seen in, in terms of what Chinese consumers want? One of the things that I think makes China truly unique is that you have sub-generational differences every five years. So in China, it's meaningful to talk about post-90s, post-95s, post-noughts. If you put those three consumers in the same room, they would have difficulty talking to each other. Basically, the post-noughts would think the post-90s are kind of aunties and uncles. That's how different their internet language is. That's how different their attitude and level of internationalization is. You're almost seeing distinctive consumer segments within generations in China. Moving on to Jaya now. Um, Goose Island uh, entered the China in 2016 when craft beer barely had a presence among Chinese consumers. Uh, can you explain the journey of Goose Island in China uh, from when you launched until today? We chose Shanghai as the base to enter the Chinese market and then we move on to Beijing. Um, it was a calculated um, decision because Shanghai and Beijing in terms of craft beer, um, is actually quite well known. The, the consumers are a lot more open to craft beer. Beijing has a very strong local craft beer scene. Um, in Shanghai during the time, you have quite a number of smaller craft beers, which is already coming in, specifically from Belgium and also some from Australia. As a Chicago brand for us, it was very important for the Chinese consumers to understand what made Goose Island? And that was the origin. We came from an urban city. Um, so we always talked about being, you know, from Chicago, Obama drank our beer at G20, that photo that everyone kept on seeing, you know, so that is always an association of Goose Island during the time. And then we opened a brew house in Shanghai, the flagship brew house in 2000, at the end of 2016. The, um, the experience of actually opening a brew house. Again, Goose Island started from a brew pub. You know, it was um, during the start of the craft beer movement in the, in the US, it made sense for us to start again from a brew house. In Shanghai, when we created the location, it was in a way to, um, to let the Chinese consumers understand how beer is made. What is the difference between industrial style beers and craft beers? Um, having a brew house as well made it easier and made it more accessible for consumers to understand how a beer, when it's being brewed, smells, um, how you can pair it with food, for example. That was very important for us. And we always thought that when we opened the brew house in March 2000, you know, end of 2016, we thought that, all right, it's going to be mostly foreigners coming in and then the Chinese will follow in. We were very wrong. 
The Chinese consumers make up 90% of the clientele from day one. And they were the ones coming in. They were all interested in trying new things. Um, most of them have never known what craft beer is or what an IPA is. They only knew that they don't like strong alcohol. They do not like bitter beer. But it'd be very interesting when you see a table of four to six people, mostly between the ages of late 20s until early 40s. And the first thing when they try all the different beers, they go for the IPA. Okay, so it sounds like uh, there's a piece of education, obviously, within the brew house and, and, and the experience uh, of being there as well. I guess, what, what have been the biggest learnings of an American beer brand entering the Chinese market? Entering into China where craft beer makes up 1% of the total beer consumption. Um, it's all about letting people understand what craft beer is about, what makes it different. Um, you know, they only know there is white or dark beer. They don't understand the different flavors that goes in there. So what makes craft beer tick? That was one of the things that we have learned. It's all about education, but the Chinese consumers do not want you to tell them what to do and what to drink. They want to make that decision themselves. So the tone of voice, the content that you come out with is extremely important. And that is something that as us as Goose Island, for me specifically, is understanding what content to take from the US that we have done, all my products, and how do I make it work for the Chinese consumers? That was the most important thing for us. How do you differentiate your marketing strategies for different tier cities? Something that Mark touched on earlier. Yeah, so, um, I mean, right now we have a very strong foothold in Shanghai and Beijing. Um, the next step for us, we've already had a strong foothold in Shanghai and Beijing where the Chinese consumers are not the same at all between these two cities because the way that you speak to are different, the way that you approach your marketing is very different. And then for us, once you, you know, for us, Shanghai, now I'm going, obviously going into Hangzhou and the neighboring cities. So then it's, you know, you're talking in a slightly similar manner, so to speak, because they emulate what the big city is doing, right? So Beijing is the same. For us as well, going now, you know, focusing for the south of China, as you guys have mentioned, you know, it's a completely different ballgame altogether. Language aside, Cantonese versus Mandarin, um, how they behave you know, the uh, socially and, you know, how they react when they're having food with their friends and their colleagues and their families is completely different. For us, it's a learning curve and understanding that better in order for us to talk to them better. So one of the things that we have learned was that Shanghai, I always say that because I've always been in Shanghai for the last 12 years. So I always tell people that Shanghai is not China. You know, it's the consumers are very metropolitan, very cosmopolitan, very well-traveled, very diverse, um, you know, bilingual at most times, you know. Xiamen is obviously, yeah, you know, you have a lot of people who travel a lot, you know, Hong Kong and neighboring cities and stuff like that. But then the needs are different. For every 1,200 restaurants in Shanghai, which fits my Western bar, Western restaurant kind of um, you know, category, I might only have five in Xiamen. So how do I work with that? And understanding who are going to these restaurants and whether they make sense for me as a business, and then talking to the consumers in those locations. Those are very important for me to understand. Okay, nice. Thanks, Jaya. Um, moving, moving along with Stone. Um, Stone's the founder and CEO of Bonapp, a bilingual uh, premium lifestyle and travel community for one plus million international people in 13 Asian cities. 
I'm sure many in the room have it on their phone right now, actually. <laughs> Stone, can you tell me a little bit more about BornApp and, I guess, the makeup of your user base and, and the story behind it? So for the last five years, we have done three things about BornApp. One is we have accumulated one million users. Uh, the makeup is about uh, maybe 40% uh, uh, internationalized Chinese and 60% uh, foreigners. And now we start get more and more uh, incoming tourists uh, start using Bona before they arrive in China. As opposed to, hey, I've been in Shanghai for three days from TripAdvisor, and here's what the city has to offer. But our goal in the next probably uh, 12 months is to be the app for them to download. Because you don't want to download a different food app when you travel to Beijing, to Chengdu. You want to download Didi when you're in here and there, all in one app. That's our position, the super app for international people in China. It was originally launched as an expat app. Well, it's about 50-50 uh, currently of uh, Chinese versus expats. Uh, what was your, I guess, your marketing strategy going into, I guess, that, that, that market? I was in the U.S. for 10 years before I came to Shanghai eight years ago. I was a social chair for the Dharmas uh, group in Shanghai. And my job was to basically find a restaurant and bar for the guys to and gals to hang out every month. And then I couldn't use Dianping because, you know, uh, it was in Chinese. Uh, it was uh, reviews from people who didn't like raw fish in a sushi place. Uh, <laughs> so just people didn't like it. And as a product manager by trade, I wanted to prototype something for my alums, for the people from the Ivy League, American schools, and then all the international people in Shanghai as the English app only. That's our very strong positioning. And we got people who love leaving reviews, 2% of the population who love leaving reviews. And then they're going to tell their friends and families and colleagues in the office, hey, check out my reviews. And then their Chinese friends start going out with them. And then they share Bon App in their WeChat group. Uh, and that's how we basically 100% of our users acquired uh, word of mouth because uh, we focus on pro product. Uh, and then uh, the Chinese users are looking for very different things. They love the events. They love the social aspect of it because they only use one app when they hang out with their uh, international friends. So social bit is kind of our play in the Chinese market. And then for incoming tourists, that's also different because they want a convenience. When they come to China, right? People come to China for two reasons. One, because of the economic development. They gotta check out Pudong. Right? Two is because of the cultural attraction. They also hear from the mainstream media what China is about. It's like a black hole. You can't use Google, you can't use Facebook. We take advantage of that fear and say, we have this one super app for you. You don't have to worry about anything. It's one app for every step in China. And that's a very strong and effective position. That's interesting play. I think, um, I mean, your app is obviously available in more than cities than Shanghai and Beijing. Uh, are there any different preferences of users from tier one, tier two, tier three cities across China? What I'm saying is uh, about nine years ago when I first visited Shanghai as a student, I, I met a professor at CBIS and said, China, in his own words, China is as complicated as the whole Europe and Africa combined language, you know, people's behavior and everything. So we have to understand this. Uh, Shanghai is very different from Beijing. Uh, Beijing is very China-centric. Uh, the cool kids, the cool expat kids in Beijing, they all speak very good Mandarin. Uh, we're in seven different cities in mainland China and six 
in the Asia Pacific. Uh, you can see that um, like in, in, in Chengdu and basically in tier two cities, most of the foreigners are either foreign students or for English teachers. But you have to basically really uh, understand what the Chinese government want uh, from the local government. Because like Chengdu is the most international tier two city in China. And you know it's not because of the foreign uh, English teachers. It's because of the government really want to position it that way. I guess looking forward in the next two or three years, if you were to make predictions, I guess, about the Chinese consumers generally and what they were looking for and wanting, uh, is there anything you could add to what the other panelists have said? Yeah. I, I, I'm seeing a cycle in here. Uh, I was born in China, uh, in Sichuan, uh, until I was 22, you know, and then I was in the U.S. for 10 years. What I saw is when I was seven, uh, I used to use Liang Piao, the food coupon to buy. Uh, I was seven, you know, I went to the market. And it was a big scene for us to see, you know, basically, you know, chicken with hormone growth. Because all of a sudden, you can have all the chicken wins you can have. It's a big scene. And now it's coming back to organic chicken. And people paying big money for it. Uh, it used to be that, you know, uh, Nestle instant coffee was a big thing. And then you have 10 years ago in B-School, people debating whether coffee would take over China. And now Shanghai with 500 Starbucks alone. Uh, and then next day, I'm not drinking Starbucks because I'm too spoiled with gourmet coffee in the former French concession. I didn't like my coffee in Frankfurt when I was spending my two-week two summer in there because the coffee really sucked. <laughs> From the high street, from you know the best coffee shop in Frankfurt, I didn't like it. I'm too spoiled. So you, you start to develop that standard. Going forward, I see this trend uh, coming stronger even. I see um, people being more aware of what they want. People not following trend, but really uh, understanding what's best for them. Trusting a true story, like a touching story, the emotional bit of it. Uh, and of course, you have to play with the, uh, the, the Chinese pride. I guess this one, um, we'll come back down to Mark here. We, talk, we touched on uh, technology, Jerry touched on technology uh, just earlier, but what advice would you give to foreign brands trying to enter China when it comes to technology? It's a big question. <laughs> I think we need a, a whole panel on that. I think it's coming with an open mind, and I know for everyone in the room it would be a cliche, but obviously everything you know in technology is... There is no comparison in China. So from trying to compare Weibo to Twitter or Facebook to WeChat, it's just the way consumers use it is so different and, and the, even the opportunities to use it are, are so much greater here. You just look at something as simple as payments. You're looking at the second biggest market in the world for payments, America, $128 billion last year, whereas China, China was $9 trillion. So I think it's payments for me is probably the biggest thing you have here that you don't really have on any scale in the West. When clients come to you with the question around technology, what advice do you give them in terms of what they need to be China ready? Technology, consumers here embrace it more than anyone, anyone else in the world. And a lot of it's they don't have the same data issues. They've always been watched by the big brother or, or however you want to look at it. But they've also... For so long, China was the way you could get news and get information, get educated, was through state media. It was all controlled by Beijing. All of a sudden, and a bit later to the game, this thing called social media came along, and this thing called Weibo. 
and these people that haven't had a voice and ever before can now say what they think and they can hear what other people think as well so that's almost this forbidden fruit that Chinese are inherently very interested and curious people something I love about the place and and some of that comes with their technology adoption um, I might just throw this one to Jerry um, I guess in terms of what consumers want what do you believe are the major desires when it uh, comes to brands and technology I mean how is online versus offline evolving um, I think uh, we just touched on the point as Stone mentioned that people are starting to think more about their own identity and I think their attitude to brands has changed as a result. So maybe five years ago, brands were about social badging. So check me out, check out my Gucci, check out my shoes. But now it's like I'm living through that brand. Uh, auto brands are starting to do this very well. So they're talking about how the car allows you to live a certain lifestyle, what it means to be a BMW driver versus a uh, a, a Ford driver, for example. So when I talk to um, consumers sort of in their late 20s into their 30s, they're starting to talk a lot about brand stories. So where did the brand come from? What's the relationship of the brand to me? And it's sort of less about badging and more about how can I, how can I express myself through that brand? And, of course, digital is a wonderful opportunity to tell those stories in China. And, uh, and Jaya, I guess, on the, on the subject of technology and what Chinese consumers want, I guess, how's Goose Island uh, embracing technology uh, for your segment of the market? As a brand that has um, come from the US, the major thing about, about Goose Island itself is always about Instagram and Facebook. Twitter has never been a big thing for us, but it's always about expressing what the brand is like. Our photos are always very raw, very taken on the spot. Uh, comments were always made about the moment to enjoy. Take all of that aside, I've only got WeChat. How do I utilize WeChat a lot better? It's not just about sharing, you know, like um, content, um, you know, information about beer, beer education information, but there is another thing that we need to engage them with. And that is through games, for example, like H5 mini programs, all that comes into play. But the thing is, the consumers are being bombarded by this 20 times a day. How do you make yourself relevant is another thing. Something else that we really do um, focus on as well as we move along are videos. Mini videos are a big thing as well for us. This one's extremely topical and I'm sure everybody's probably put it in the Q&A uh, piece already. And if you haven't, scanned the QR code up there to, to join our Q&A. Dolce & Gabbana? <laughs> <laughs> Um, I'll throw to you first, Mark, um, in terms of Dolce & Gabbana. We've all seen what happens. I think on the topic of cultural appropriateness, um, what can we learn and how can brands avoid that? I, I'm still a little bit baffled by D&G. I don't know how you make the same mistake twice in two years. I, I think you've got to actually come here and spend time in the market and be using agencies that are familiar with the market and I think their biggest issue is, as a, as a luxury brand, you're going to want to be seen as this premium, aspirational product. And I don't think anyone's going to take them seriously for quite a long time now. Caroline, who's here, um, she's part of the skinny, um, she was <laughs> saying the other day, she watched that uh, uh, rich, rich, crazy, crazy, rich <laughs> Asians. I don't know if anyone's seen it, but... 
she's in a, in a Chinese cinema and there wasn't a lot of laughter in, in the way that possibly in American cinema. But the one bit that, that people were laughing the most was when one of the crazy rich Asians got a bit of something, he goes, spilt on his shirt and he goes, that's my dolce. And that was when everyone pissed themselves laughing. It's quite funny that, that something as silly as that small part of the movie was, was Chinese are just not taking it seriously as a brand anymore. And it's just because they've missed the mark. So uh, what, how can brands avoid that? Uh, what's, what's the simple answer for that? <laughs> I don't think there's any hundred percent surefire way and, and so many foreign brands have made gaffes here, but I think it's spending time in the market. I think taking more leadership rather than some dude who's got his house on the French Riviera making these big calls about China. And that concludes season one of our Live Lounge podcast series. We hope you enjoyed listening. If you would like to get in touch with any of the panellists in this episode, please contact the team at the British Chamber of Commerce in Shanghai. Do keep your ears open for season two, which begins in May 2019. Season two kicks off with the addition of our new mini lounge podcast format, which aims to focus on more detailed industry topics led by various members of our marketing focus group. I'm Kirsten Johnston. Thank you for listening.